You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open our Bibles to the Scripture readings for this morning. First of all, we're going to read Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden carabim, 
and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now we go to the New Testament, to the Gospel according to John, chapter 15. We'll begin reading at verse 26, and we'll go to the 16th verse of chapter 16. When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, He will testify about Me. And you also must testify, for you have been with Me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or Me. I have told you this, so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first, because I was with you. Now I am going to Him who sent me. Yet none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer and in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. In a little while, you will see me no more. And then, after a little while, you will see me. Let's now turn in our books of praise to the Heidelberg Catechism and Lord's Day 43. Dealing here with the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What is required in the Ninth Commandment? I must not give false testimony against anyone. Twist no one's words. Not gossip or slander. Nor condemn or join in condemning anyone rashly and unheard. Rather, I must avoid all lying and deceit as the devil's own works, under penalty of God's heavy wrath. In court and everywhere else, I must love the truth. Speak and confess it honestly, and do what I can to defend and promote my neighbor's honor and reputation. Beloved congregation of Christ Jesus our Lord, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but there is a progression in the commandments regarding how we live in connection with our neighbors. The fifth commandment is a sort of a transition between living before God and living with men. It deals with authority. The Sixth Commandment deals with life and its preservation. The Seventh Commandment moves on to relationships. And the Eighth 
speaks about property. When we come to the ninth word of the, uh, of the covenant, we come to communication. Well, communication is something that we all do. And sometimes, perhaps even many times, we do it badly. And examples are close at hand. Just think of what happened in Ottawa this past week. Prominent news story. A certain MP publicly accused another MP from another party, accused him of looking at inappropriate images on his notebook computer in the House of Commons. She was livid because this MP had not only degraded women with his brazen lewdness, but he had also brought disrepute on the house. Something you're not supposed to do, of course. Well, as it turned out, the MP who made the accusations, she had misread the facts, got the facts wrong, and she jumped to judgmental conclusions. And she had to issue a public apology for her false accusations. This sort of thing happens all the time, doesn't it? People regularly jump to rotten conclusions based on things like gossip, based on a lack of charity, or sometimes even pure malice. Not only is love for the truth an increasingly rare commodity, but what people do with the truth, how they communicate, is oftentimes a sad spectacle. And let's face it, all of us are guilty of this, including myself. Even in the church of Jesus Christ, we break life down with our sins in the area of communication. Well, how do we deal with these issues? Well, we work with the assumption that sanctification, which is what we're talking about in this part of the catechism, sanctification is a matter of making progress in holiness. Sanctification is about moving forward. So we have to deal with it. But how? Well, like with all other issues in the Christian life, we begin by looking closely at ourselves. Who are we and how is that going to impact how we live? Well, we are redeemed believers, bought with the precious blood, of Christ our Savior. Through faith we have union with Him. We are in Him. And He is described in the Bible as being truth personified. Well-known passage of John 14.6, He says that He is the truth. Truth characterizes His mission, freeing people from lies and the effects of lies. Truth characterizes His nature. He represents integrity in full measure. Truth characterizes every word that comes from His lips. And so it is to be with those who are united to Him. Those who are in Christ, who believe in Him, reflect their identity with the way they communicate. And that's what's driven home to us in Lord's Day 43. It's part of our sanctification 
The ninth word of the covenant directs us to embrace our identity in the truth. That's our theme for this morning. And we're going to work this out considering two points. First of all, the first Adam and the lie. And then second of all, the second Adam and the truth. Well, our, our love affair with the lie, that's what it is, a love affair, it goes back right to the beginning. At some point, we don't know when, some of the angels rebelled against God. They became enemies of God and of all that is good. Their leader was the great adversary, Satan. Satan means adversary or enemy. And Satan is described in John 8 verse 44 by Jesus Christ as being the father of lies. The father of lies. That means that lies are Satan's little children. Let there be no doubt about it. Satan wants to be fruitful and multiply. He wants to fill the earth with his little kitties, spitting images of their lying father. And with that goal in mind, the devil deceitfully took on the form of a snake in Genesis 3. He didn't come as he really was. He didn't introduce himself. Hello, I'm Satan. I've come to the garden to mess everything up. He took on a disguise. You see, right away, the trickery of Satan. He doesn't present things as they are, but he uses deception. Already, this was a false form of communication. You see, communication involves a lot more than what we say, than what comes out of our mouths, than what comes off the tips of our tongues. Communication is also done through things like body language, how we interact, even what we wear. Let me give a couple of illustrations. A young man who dresses like a rapper or a gangsta He's communicating that he admires that lifestyle and he's part of it, or at least he wants to be part of it. Well, he shouldn't be surprised when he's walking down the street and someone comes up to him and tries to sell him drugs. Or to use another example, a woman, a young woman who dresses provocatively is communicating whether she realizes or not that she is available and that she is interested in fornication. She shouldn't be surprised when men expect her to deliver. You see, communication is much more than what we say. But what we say is included. And we see that in Genesis 3 as well. When Satan first approaches Eve in his disguise... He first creates doubt. Did God really say? He begins with a a subtle form of deception. First he uses the disguise and then he uses subtlety. What seems to be a genuine question. And from what follows, it's clear that Satan knew very well what God had said. 
He was dishonest from the get-go, giving the impression, trying to give the impression that he was just missing some information. Eve, I, I need your help here. The question, however, was not about information. It was about doubt and deception. Getting the woman to wonder, what was it that God really said anyway? And Eve's reply to Satan was straightforward enough. It was a fairly accurate retelling of what it was that God had said. But then at that point, the serpent had her. His next statement did away with subtleties and was just a bald-faced lie. You will not surely die. Satan denied the truthfulness of God's threat. God is not going to do that to you if you eat of the fruit. If you eat of this fruit, Eve, you will be like God. And there was another lie. You can stand up on your own two feet, Eve. You don't need God. All these lies are embraced by unbelief to this day. According to Romans chapter 1, what may be known about God is plain to everyone. What would unbelievers do? They exchange the truth for a lie. According to what it says in Romans 1. They, Paul says, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They know. Unbelievers know that there is a God who said, you shall surely die. They know that there is a God who will judge them for their sins and their wickedness. They know that there is a God in whom they live and move and have their being. But what does Paul say they do with that truth? They suppress it. They put it down. They tell themselves the lie over and over and over again until they start to believe it. Or at least they can say that they believe it. And Eve believed it. Eve believed the lie. She, she saw the fruit of the tree and was drawn to it like a moth to a flame. She took it and she ate it and she led her husband to do the same. Both husband and wife embraced the lies of God's enemy. And the human race has never been the same since. But wonder of wonders, God went after the fallen couple. In His grace and mercy, He took the initiative. He sought them out. And when He did that, when He confronted them, He gave them the opportunity to take responsibility for what they had done. But did they seize on that opportunity? No. Right away they demonstrated that they had chosen a new allegiance. They had chosen for the father of lies. Rather than honestly taking responsibility for what he had done, Adam, the covenant head, played the blame game. We all know that game, don't we? First, he blames the woman. The woman! Over there! Not me. Her! And second, he 
He blames God of all things. The woman you gave me. In other words, God, this is your fault too. Unbelievable, isn't it? What a lie. What a distortion. And then when God turns to the woman, she plays the same game. The serpent deceived me. She's not quite as brazen as Adam, but there is a subtle indictment of God in these words too. After all, that serpent, who created him? Who placed him on the earth? Yes, she does admit responsibility just like her husband, but she's not going to take the full blame. You see what happens here, don't you? It's Eve's fault. It's God's fault. It's the serpent's fault. And it's a little bit of my fault too. I had I had a bit to do with it. But it's not all my fault. I was more or less a, a hapless victim of a, a bad circumstance. I had a bad day and, a, and I made a little mistake. Well, doesn't this all sound familiar? As believers in Jesus Christ, we need to read this story from a certain posture. And the posture that we need to adopt is one of students learning from their Master. Our Master, our Lord, He wants us to see the lie embraced by our first parents. And you know what He wants us to do with it? He wants us to put it off. Remember, we're talking about sanctification. And sanctification is a two-part process. Putting off and putting on. There's a picture there, and it's the picture of a person with clothes. And that the person has dirty, old clothes on. Stained clothes. And the person takes those old, dirty, stained clothes off and then puts on clean, new clothes. And we find that putting off, putting on picture in Colossians 3, where Paul speaks about taking off the old self with its practices and putting on the new self. And in that context, he speaks explicitly about the ninth commandment. He says, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. The old self is our fallen human nature which is united to the first Adam. We're to put off our love affair with the lie and with all manner of falsehood and deception. Yes, we have loved the lie. And the remnants of our old nature with which we have to struggle daily continue to love the lie. But thankfully... We have a Savior. A Savior who has paid for all our wrong loves with His precious blood. We have a Savior who perfectly kept the ninth commandment in our place. What a great salvation we have. And our thankfulness for so great a salvation 
It shapes the putting off of old sinful practices and habits. So then, loved ones, we have to say, enough of deceitful communication, whether it's verbal or nonverbal. Remember, communication is a big category. Deceitful ways of communication, that's the devil's own work. Enough, we say, of doubting the God of truth. That's what Satan does. Enough of playing the blame game and refusing to take responsibility for what we do. And the Catechism draws more of this out when it says, enough of giving false testimony against anyone. Enough twisting people's words and gossip, slander. Let's just stop here for a moment and reflect on that last thing. Gossip, slander. We have to, first of all, be clear about the definition of gossip. We can define gossip as destructive communication about our neighbors, about those around us. Notice that with that definition, whether it's true or not is irrelevant. Sometimes you'll hear hear people say that. But it's true what I'm saying. Well, sorry, you missed the point. Gossip is not spreading falsehoods about people. Gossip is destructive communication, even about things that are true about your neighbor. Many of us are good at gossip, had lots of practice. But the Word instructs us to put it off. It does not fit with a Christian life. It doesn't belong in the life of someone who is united to Christ. So what are some practical things that we can do to put gossip to death in our lives? Well, I can think of four. Four things. Maybe you can think of more. I encourage you to, to think about that. But four things that I can suggest to you. First of all, we can cut gossips off. Sounds rude, but it's what we need to do. Someone is going to tell you a juicy tidbit. Did you hear what happened with so-and-so? Just say, you know what? I don't want to hear about that. I'm just not interested. Second, there are those who want us to gossip. They pry and they probe and they bait with leading questions. Refuse to engage them on it. Change the subject. Walk away. Do whatever you have to do, but don't take the bait. Don't bite. Third, as much as it's in your power, refuse to read or to watch gossip about others. I know many of us go through grocery checkout aisles every week and you know what you see there. Plenty of gossip. Turn on the television, there's all kinds of shows dedicated to gossip. Don't buy those magazines, loved ones. 
Don't pay attention to them. Don't watch the gossip shows. And finally, you can put off gossip and kill it by setting a good example for others. And here I'd like you to think especially of our children. If our children hear us on the telephone, we should recognize that when we are on the telephone, our children are often listening, even if we don't realize it. And our children hear us engaged in destructive communication about others. What are we to expect from them as they grow older? How are we to expect them to act and behave? They need a good example. You have to give it to them. So brothers and sisters, as part of your sanctification, put off, take off those dirty gossip clothes. And there's also putting off condemning or joining in condemning anyone rashly and unheard. Now we began with that example from Ottawa this past week. That's what was happening there. Happens more often in the news and in our daily lives. We have to use charity with our neighbors and deal with them as we would want them to deal with us. And in this connection, one of my seminary professors gave an illustration from some of his experiences. There's a congregation in the Netherlands. I'm not sure if he was serving there as a pastor or he was a member in that church. It doesn't really matter. And in this church there was a poor widow. And it was well known by everyone in the church, it was the worst kept secret in the church, that she was receiving help from the deacons. And one day someone saw this widow walking around town with a brand new beautiful jacket. Very expensive looking coat. And that someone started a rumor saying that this widow, evil woman, she was abusing the support she received from the deacons. How could she do this? The deacons gave her all this money and she was using it to buy a fancy coat when a cheaper coat would have done the trick. Well, like often happens, that rumor spread like cancer and the woman's reputation was nearly destroyed. But eventually, however, it came out that this coat was a gift from someone in the congregation. The lesson? Be charitable and don't judge by appearances. The ninth commandment directs us to put off our old judgmental ways and to think the best of others. So now we've considered the first Adam and the lie and everything associated with that. Now let's shift to the positive side of this commandment and consider the second Adam and the truth. Let's look at what we can learn from our Savior in this respect from what we read or what we read from John's Gospel. It's the same Gospel, of course, where we find that saying where Jesus says that He is the truth. find that in John 14, verse 6. In fact, we read more about Christ and the truth in John than in any other Gospel. It's one of the defining features of this book. 
And so it's not really a surprise to find him speaking about the truth at the end of John 15 either. He describes the Spirit he shall send as being the Spirit of truth. Now remember that he had said that he is the truth. And now he describes his Spirit, which he shall send, as being of the same nature. So you see, the second Adam is truth in the deepest and the richest way possible. Then notice what he says in verse 7. We might easily gloss over those words. I tell you the truth. We find Jesus saying words like that throughout the Gospels. He is the truth and He tells the truth. Here again we see, don't we, His perfect obedience to God's law. The obedience given to us so that we are right with God. The first Adam failed to follow God and instead chose for the lie. The second Adam, wonderful good news, he always followed God and he embraced and he embodied the truth. And he also says that the Spirit of truth will come and lead the apostles into the truth. Now this is a reference primarily to the writing of the New Testament. The Holy Spirit would guide the apostles to remember everything that Christ had said and done and they would write it down. The Spirit would guide them to write letters and Gospels and so forth that would be the inspired, authoritative, and truthful Word of God. Through these words of Christ, we can be assured that the Bible gives us truth. You know, the world says there is no truth. Every person has their own truth inside them. Forget what the world says. There is public objective truth outside of ourselves. And it is found in the Holy Scriptures. And all of these different things get tied together in the Scriptures, particularly in the letters of the New Testament. Ephesians, for example. In Ephesians, the Apostle Paul speaks extensively about our union with Christ, our identity in Him. Repeatedly, he uses words like in Christ or similar expressions. And when he does that, he's speaking about union with Christ through faith. And that's why in Ephesians 2, for instance, he speaks about God raising us up with Christ seating us with Christ in the heavenly places, and so on. We are united to Him. We are joined to Him through faith. And then later in the letter, Paul works out the implications of that, what it means to be united to the Savior, having your identity in Him. He tells us that Christ deals with the curse of sin through His suffering and death. But Christ doesn't stop there. He doesn't only deal with our justification. He also works out our sanctification. He deals with the power of sin in our lives. And in that framework, he speaks about the putting off and putting on that we had heard earlier from Colossians. That comes out in Ephesians as well. And it's also tied to the truth 
In Ephesians 4, he says to put off the old self, corrupted by deceitful desires. Note the connection to the lie there. He speaks about deceitful desires. We're to put off falsehood, according to verse 25 of Ephesians 4. And then this putting off, this taking off all these dirty, stained clothes is not meant to leave us neutral or naked. There's also to be a putting on of something. Put on fresh, clean clothes. The clothes of Jesus Christ. We're to put on speaking truthfully to our neighbor. The communication that comes from us, according to Paul, has to be helpful for building others up according to their needs. Not destructive communication, but helpful and communication that builds up. And the putting on is tied to Christ explicitly in verse 15. He says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head. That is Christ. Being joined to Christ means that we will be those who speak the truth in love. Notice those last two words, the the qualifier that Paul uses there. In love. Now sometimes the ninth commandment is construed as being a blanket statement prohibiting lying. People will sometimes paraphrase it and say, the ninth commandment says don't lie. Or they construe it as in a positive way, tell the truth. That's not actually what the commandment says. It's about bearing false witness against our neighbor. We are to put on speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth, here it is, for our neighbor. God calls us to communicate in a way that builds people up. That's the way of the second Adam, the one who is the truth, but also the one who revealed to us in full measure the love of the Father. As a consequence, there are certain things which are truthful. They should not be said. For instance, just to take one example, maybe kind of a weird example, but um, perhaps you know someone who is ugly. It's a fact. Everyone agrees. Does it build them up to tell them that they are ugly? Hey, you know you're ugly. Speak the truth in love. And we could multiply examples and illustrations, but you need to think this through for yourself. Only speak what helps people and edifies, builds up, and do so with the tender love and the kindness of your Savior. Catechism says that in every circumstance of life, we are to love the truth, to speak and confess it honestly, and to do whatever we can to promote our neighbor's honor and reputation. Loved ones, notice here that all of this is active. As part of the putting on aspect of our sanctification, we are to be busy with these things. 
It's not enough to merely not say anything negative about your neighbor when others are putting him down. We're directed by the ninth commandment to be active in defending and promoting the, the, the good name of our neighbors. To do what we can. Brothers and sisters, we are redeemed by Christ. And He redeems our souls. He redeems our bodies. He also redeems our communication. And He wants to transform it so that our communication more and more looks like His. So that our entire life is a perfect reflection, a reflection rather, of His perfect character and obedience. And you know as well as I do that this is a difficult area. Perhaps this is the area with which we all together face the most struggles. And there's a reason, you see, why so much of the Bible is taken up with this, taken up with issues regarding communication. Just go through the book of Proverbs and see how many, how many of the Proverbs deal with speech and deal with the mouth and the tongue and so forth. It's amazing. And you'll find that throughout the Bible. Let's be honest and recognize that we do need help in this area. We do need transformation and change. Let's be honest and recognize that need. Let's now pray to God for His help in that. O God of truth and light, we thank You that Your Word is steadfast, reliable, and true. In You there is no darkness, there is no falsehood, no deception. And we thank You for a Savior who is the truth. We thank You, Lord Jesus, for Your perfect life of obedience on our behalf. Also, Your perfect obedience to the Ninth Commandment. We praise You for having paid for all our sins against this commandment with Your suffering and Your death on the cross. Lord God, we thank You for the Spirit of truth who lives in our hearts. We pray that He would guide us more and more to embrace our identity in the truth. We ask that You would help us to put off every form of falsehood and deceit. Please give us more grace so that we put on a new way a love for the truth, a desire to communicate the truth and to do good for all those around us, to build up. Father, of ourselves we are helpless, and so we call to You for Your ongoing work in our lives. Please continue to transform us and change us with Your Word and Spirit so that our faith in Christ produces the fruit that pleases You. We pray that You would hear us as we pray in the One who is the truth, Christ, our Savior. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.